in the regulatory complaints, it's got to be done by the book, step by step, because there's nothing worse than having your license tagged or suspended. Do you really want uh, Mark Zuckerberg in charge of your of your health information? Well, he knows everything else about you. What the heck? Rick, it's Greg, and I don't know how to break this to you, but it's now 2020. We oh. don't have any horns or uh, noisemakers or anything like that, but but we're at it again for another year. It's good to have you there, and uh, quite frankly, I'm glad I'm still on the air. So uh, let's get going with some risk management monthly. Things going all right for you, Rick? Yeah, hi, Greg. It's nice to talk with you this year. Uh, yes, I'm looking forward to a right-eyed, bushy-tailed year. We've got a good uh, issue for you coming up. We've got a bunch of stuff here we want to uh, cover. Some of it that you've mailed in and some of it we have found. Let's start off with actually what I think to be a really uh, pretty important article. We haven't seen this guy before. Although, interestingly enough, we found an article that uh, was similar to this many, 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 many years ago. This is entitled Systematic Review of Malpractice Litigation in the Diagnosis and Treatment of Acute Stroke. This is by Dr. Hazlitt at Colleagues. This was published in Stroke. I believe it's the October issue, 2019. This is hot off the press, as they say in the trade, Greg. Yes. Now, what they did here are three large databases to... Uh, Research to find anything related to uh, jury verdicts and settlements related to uh, the word stroke in there someplace. These are cases through 2017. I don't think you're going to find anything uh, more current than that. Right. Uh, what they came up with is uh, 246 cases related to the treatment of ischemic stroke and 26 hemorrhagic strokes. Here's something that uh, reaffirms reinforces uh, what we've seen other places. The average time from incident to case outcome was 4.9 years. Oh, that's that's like lightning speed in the U.S. <laughs> court system. Uh, and the, and, and the, the greatest number of cases were, of course, from New York, California, and Florida. Well, hello. Those are the three states with the most people, I think. So uh, nothing surprising there, Rick. No, I agree. Uh, average point of age, I thought, was surprising. 50 years old. I thought that people would be a lot older. Yes. Uh, but maybe that's a, a example of a mathematical kind of jujitsu because the range of age for strokes that were litigated were from age one to age 102, and the average is 50. But maybe there was nobody 50 or uh, whoever had a stroke, it was maybe the extremes of age only. So this is not a, using the word average is probably not a good um, term here. It would be better if it was the median or something like that. Yes. And I think the reason uh, this data is a little skewed is because as you get into older age ranges, if you're 80 and you've had a stroke, the family's probably more expecting or more accepting of it and is not as quick to sue. If you're 50, just like you did, you assume that's kind of young. So maybe the family's more interested in suing at that age because maybe they think the patient could have been saved. 
30% of the cases only involved the physician, but as you would anticipate, the majority, 50%, involved the doctor and the hospital. Right. And, and 20% only involved the hospital, implying that somebody screwed up on the nurse's side or something like that. Uh, but I, I, it would be un, unusual to see those cases. And uh, how many cases involved an advanced practice clinician? Nine. Yes, I know it, it. It's not a lot. By the way, Rick, one of the reasons you see the hospital involved in at least some of the cases that I've read is that the families went after them because they didn't have a system set up to rapidly move the patient. Now we're starting to see this huge sea change in the management of uh, ischemic stroke. What we're seeing is more and more people are going to intervention and uh, not giving TPA, but going in and sucking out the clot. So here's something else where the hospital has to have a system set up that that uh, or they have to have something uh, where this new therapy can accommodate it to. So I, I look forward to seeing this uh, hospital involvement uh, stay up there simply because a lot of people aren't ready to take these cases when they come in. 36% of the cases involve patients who are discharged. Uh, well, we don't, that's not good. Uh, this is a <laughs> failure to diagnose uh, stroke in evolution is what uh, the uh, attorneys are saying. Right. And, uh, and they could certainly be a stutter stroke, Rick. When they came in, they, their, their symptoms... Uh, which had come out at home, are now clearing. Uh, they get examined. The findings aren't clear, and they're sent home. So it doesn't mean they had a gross stroke sitting in front of them. It may be at the time the physician saw the case. It wasn't obvious because most of us don't miss obvious strokes. You know, uh, we read a paper many, many years ago that looked at all the cases that they had up until that time. And the major reason for our lawsuits was failure to give or offer at least uh, TPA. TPA. In this, in this uh, study, 71 cases alleged failure to give TPA. That's 71 out of 246. So uh, that's not that many. I'm surprised that it's not more. But anyway, right. that's still up there. Yeah, so and I, by the by the way, we're not the only docs involved, but we're assume, we're involved about twice as often as as uh, neurologists. But neurologists do get involved in these cases, and I think that emergency docs need to understand that when you call the neurologist up and you put his name down, and this is going to come up on another uh, case uh, today, um, they're involved as well. Uh, even uh, neurosurgeons were involved uh, 9% of the time in these cases. Well, it's interesting. Uh, there is a neurosurgeon at our local hospital who's in charge of the stroke program. Yes. Um, seven of the cases involved failure to initiate uh, or failure to offer thrombectomy. So this is the first time we're talking about thrombectomy cases. There are only seven so far, but this is uh, since uh, 2017. So I think that th that number obviously is going to go up. Well, the two papers that changed the world this way were 2014 papers. 
and those two papers were the first time we had some real data that said doing anything vascularly, TPA or anything else, was worth it. So uh, I, th- I think the sea change has already taken place and that thrombectomy is the way we're moving. With regard to the allegations, failure to timely treat without failure to di- uh, timely diagnose. So the diagnosis was made, but you farted around and you didn't treat in timely right. manner. Failure to treat with TPA, we just talked about that. Failure to refer in a timely manner uh, and a lack of informed consent. It's kind of interesting because we have talked about informed consent. Some pl- people apply, you don't need informed consent because it's the standard of care, which is the worst gibberish I've ever heard of. Right. And but it should be noted that uh, somebody here, I and I, I'd have to look at those specific cases, but to to believe that you don't have to tell the patient and family what you're doing, that's just ri- ridiculous. I mean, no one should pay attention to that. The uh, the other one that, that was uh, popped up here is fairer to transfer to another hospital. Yep. Yeah, if your hospital doesn't have what you need to do, the idea is if you don't have neurologist, if you don't have uh, the uh, clot-sucking ability, then you need to transfer them to where they have that capability since this is now kind of viewed as this is how you treat strokes. Yeah, and I, th- I honestly think that even in big states, California, um, Michigan is a very long state, uh, you're never more than about three and a half, four hours from one of these centers that can do a thrombectomy. Now, there's not, at least here in the Midwest, there aren't a lot of these centers, but the way they're geographically placed around, you can get to one of these things in three hours. And I, I think that that's, that's where the lawsuits are going to be coming from in the future. Yeah, I agree. With regard to the results of the seven, 272 cases, 62% went to a jury trial, which I'm kind of surprised that the percentage is that high. And when you do go to a jury trial, the uh, doctors won three quarters of the time. So that's, yeah. uh, that's, that's the usual uh, answer. And yet look at all the people who went to a jury trial. They thought that they were going to get a better outcome than they obviously did. Yes. As in fact, there was uh, no payment in 56% of the cases, 74 cases settled. The average settlement was 1.8 million. Uh, There are some whoppers in there. This one case here, 216, $849,187. And (laughs) that involved a case in which the only notation of record in the chart was made by an unlicensed physician's assistant who was approved only to work as a scribe. Uh, the hospital and defense tried to hide the patient's involvement and they had a hundred million dollar punitive added to their problem. Yeah. Uh, th- this is the most bizarre case. You got to remember, Rick, you can get anything from the jury, uh, a zillion dollars, but if you're not collectible for it, uh, what what we don't know is what actually got paid out. So you can come up with any jury finding you want, but if, if they're not collectible for that amount of money, the other thing is 
this is the kind of thing that would be appealed immediately for somebody to ask a question now. Really? If Mr. Smith had worked for the next 20 years as, you know, president of Ford Motor, he wouldn't have made that much money. Uh, the, uh, jury, jury numbers are fantasy numbers, and they eventually come down to something else. Well, you know, it's interesting. When the uh, lawyers took these cases to trial, they did not win three quarters of them. But when they did win, in the quarter that they did win, the uh, settlement's $9.7 million. That's, yeah, uh, and, that's a big, uh, big, big gamble there. But when they, uh, when they won, they won big. Yeah. When you roll the dice and it, they, they come up sevens. Yeah. I mean, you, you could do pretty well here. Uh, by the way, the, the uh, thoughts here uh, are important as to what they think they did right. I mean, I'm not sure anybody sued anybody for giving TPA instead of doing a thrombectomy. If one is clearly better statistically than the other, I would think that would be a, a, a reason to sue. But it hasn't gotten into the, to the medical legal case venue yet, and oh, I'm not sure why. Oh, yeah, I bet it will. I mean, the idea of... Well, you have a choice of uh, TPA or thrombectomy. Well, the, the NINDS trial said that six uh, percent got worse, twelve percent got better, and the vast vast majority, eighty-two percent, had no effect. Well, the well, and these are people who had a stroke. Well, you're not going to get that bad results with uh, thrombectomy at all. So, bottom line is, you have to up your game, and these people need to go to these thrombectomy centers. Yeah, well. Um, Hey, you know, if I had it at this moment, and who knows, I may be having a stroke at this moment, uh, I'd want to have them suck that clot out. And and uh, again, we, we all saw the world change in, uh, uh, 19, er, in 2014 with the Mr. Clean trial, uh, and that pretty much gave numbers, which <laughs> we couldn't quite believe, but you know what? That's the way I want mine done. Thanks. You know, with regard to the intracranial hemorrhage cases, I'm really kind of surprised that, um, well, there weren't very many, first of all, but the verdicts were pretty substantial in the settlements, the cases that settled $2.7 million and the plaintiff verdicts were $8.7 million. Uh, it's kind of like, well, it's kind of in, in the setting of a hemorrhage, there's there's no active treatment that I'm aware of kind none, of thing. What did they zero. do wrong here that that cost them between two and eight million dollars? <laughs> Rick, nobody said the jury system was fair. It's just a way of resolving disputes, and uh, it, it it's pretty uh, pretty bizarre. All right, Rick. Uh, another thing that has come to us is a letter from uh, one of our longtime listeners. Uh, David Dubois, who's emailed us all the way from New Zealand. Interesting, as we speak, New Zealand is getting the smoke from Australia, which is like a thousand miles away. That must be one hell of a fire. In any event, Dave, Dave has an interesting uh, problem. He practiced in the United States for 27 years. He went to Australia and has been doing care in Australia for 10 years. And, and now he's being 
offered. Uh, he's, he's interested in participating in a telemedicine doc program for the United States. Uh, now, I guess they have to call him in New Zealand because he didn't say he's actually uh, uh, located here now. But he noted that when it's nighttime in the United States, it is daytime in New Zealand. That works out pretty well, and I understand why. But he asked some questions. What are the malpractice issues when doing telemedicine? Well, we'd like to tell you, David, but there are almost no cases. There's certainly no emergency medicine cases where they've called the emergency department uh, and gotten uh, really bad advice. I mean, we've We've seen a couple of things where the nurses have told them, if you're not better in four hours, come come back, a couple of things like that. But I think that this whole field hasn't blossomed yet. We're now doing something called demand management. That is, if you have an insurance company that wants to keep down the number of visits coming into the emergency department, you can do it by the advice you give on the phone. But I'll just I'll just be real honest with you, and I've done a lot of legal cases over the years, uh, David. I, I, we don't have enough information for us to give you good advice on te- telemedicine. What I would say right now is half the diagnoses I've made in my life were because I actually saw the patient. You know, it's very hard to have them hold their rash up to the phone and and be right in that diagnosis. And you take the conservative point of view, which is if you're not sure, have them come in and be seen. And, and I think that's how you're going to stay out of trouble. Rick, what do you think? Well, with telemedicine, you can get a great history, but you can't do much of a great physical. No. And, and traditionally, you need to do a history and physical as part of your assessment to help make a diagnosis. Now you know, and I know Greg, that many times there are conditions where we only need a history. You know, if you give me a history of a fever and cough and, uh, I, and it's flu season, I'm going to tell you I have the flu and I don't really have to examine you to tell you the truth. Yeah. But, but you know, that may be just an example, but if you have other issues, you know, not being able to touch and feel and look, uh, our, our issues. And so I think that that, I think that's a medical legal risk right there. However, the telemedicine industry, I think has gotten, uh, they've got a fair track record now of cases that they've done. And, and so we're not seeing much, although I think that the stuff is coming, you know, it it takes a while for all of this stuff to come into the, uh, literature of the, uh, world of malpractice. So it's hard to say, so my issue there is number one, uh, physical exam is not generally going to be uh, completed and whether that should have been and whether that affects the diagnosis that you make, um, that's an issue. The other issue is about licensure. Now this company is from Florida that wants to hire David and I'm sure these companies know all the rules and regulations about what you need to have in the way of a license. There is this move afoot, which we mentioned before, to have a consolidated license that will allow you to practice in multiple states, which is in fact being done largely 
to, to facilitate telemedicine and to facilitate physicians being able to go and do locums in states where generally there is a doctor shortage. But in any case, this is called the Interstate Medical Licensure Compact. Right. And I'm, and I'm going to read you something here. It says, the Interstate Medical Licensure Compact is an agreement between 29 states, the District of Columbia and the Territory of Guam, where physicians are licensed by 43 different medical and osteopathic boards. My goodness. Yeah, it's big. Uh, under this agreement, licensed physicians can qualify to practice medicine under state line, across state lines, within the context of the uh, this agreement. Uh, approximately 80% of physicians meet the criteria for licensure through the uh, Interstate Medical Licensure Compact. I looked at what those uh, criteria were. Bottom line, you have to have a pristine medical record. Don't have any any uh, you're not don't have any felonies. Don't have any issues with the medical board. Uh, it's 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 it, you have to be really pretty pristine. But they say 80% of doctors will have a record like that. So this is the way to go here in terms of being able to uh, operate. And when you look at the map, there is a map uh, that is available. It shows all the states where this is uh, able to be done. And as you would anticipate, these are in the heartland of the country where rural areas are going to be much more uh, common. Yes, ex exactly. And the, the other thing is most people who have something on their record uh, when they did the study here in Michigan, if you've had an action by the board, what's it for? It's for drugs and medication. Um, some of these things aren't difficult to figure out. Uh, and actually, the number of people who are disciplined by the state medical board for their actual medical care is relatively small. Uh, back in October of 2015, we did a uh, issue that really pretty much focused on telemedicine and the risks. Uh, it's pretty extensive discussion, and there's a, a number of references there, and I would refer you back to that issue, October 2015. Yeah, Rick, we've got a letter from another friend, uh, David Esler. Tell us what he's got to say. David's from Vancouver. Uh, it's unfortunate because we had a course in Vancouver oh, last uh, June or so, you do know that there's going to be a bunch of courses out there, guys and girls, uh, around the country. We have 14 locations. We got a whole bunch of, actually, all the topics are brand new. And if you go onto our website, ccme.org, ccme.org, you'll see all the exciting things that are going on there. But in any case, where were we here? Oh, yeah. David was not able to be with us in Vancouver, because when we were in Coover, he wasn't. In any case, he is coming up with a uh, workshop that he's going to be doing uh, at the annual St. Paul's Hospital Emergency Center Conference in Whistler in September, and his topic is responding to hospital complaints and regulatory complaints. And he uh, wants to know whether we have any kind of uh, words of wisdom here uh, he suggests, obviously, that they should be handled differently and that the uh, tone of the response can enrage or placate the source of the complaint. Let me, so, let me comment on, on two things. Uh, 
when you're dealing with a complaint from a patient or even a complaint from an attending physician, um, that is a social psychological interaction where how you handle them is everything. When the complaint comes from the state board, uh, warning, you get yourself an attorney who's used to dealing with state board activity because these are political activities. Uh, people are building their careers. They're doing this or that. Some of the worst cases I ever had to go testify on with regard to physicians' actions were in front of uh, the medical board in the state of New York. Oh, my God. You have lawyers who hate doctors, doctors who hate lawyers. Uh, they're different activities. The rule in hospital complaints from patients and other attendings is get to the bottom quickly, move, speed, um, make people happy. In the regulatory complaints, it's got to be done by the book, step by step, and uh, God help you if you don't get that right, because there's nothing worse than having your license tagged or suspended for any period of time. Well, let's go back a little bit again. Hospital complaints. David, I think David, where he works, the hospital employs the uh, physicians. I don't think they're independent contractors as no, they Canada. are in the States. Right. Yeah. So a hospital complaint could be about you, the doctor, or, uh, and, or the department. But in but in some cases it, it may be about the medicine. But more more often than not, it's going about you waited in incessantly. Uh, you didn't know you weren't told what was going on. The uh, doctor was mean to me. The nurses were mean to me. All of those kinds of things. If it doesn't involve something related to the specific clinical care, the clinical care, then it's one of those things. I'm sorry that you had that experience. We'll look into it and we will see if, uh, if we will uh, do, do, do such that it won't happen again if, if possible. Because they all want to know that you acknowledge their problem, that you uh, apologize for their problem, and that you're going to try to fix it so that other people don't sur uh, have to go through that as well. Neil Little used to use the best line, which was, I'm sorry that you interpreted it this way because it certainly wasn't meant that way. Saying, putting a sorry in there uh, of how it seemed to you or how it was interpreted is always a good thing to do. It takes a little of the edge off those complaints. Right. You want to give them apology. Uh, I'm sorry uh, that you waited I'm sorry that it appeared that Dr. So-and-so was brusque with you, those kinds of things. I'm sorry. Right. You got to say, I'm sorry. The reason I specifically noted the clinical issues is that you have to be very careful about saying sorry regarding something that was uh, on the clinical spectrum, because if, if there was an error, as a result of that error, somebody you know got hurt or, or something to the fact that it may go to a a lawyer, you have to be careful about your saying, I'm sorry. Uh, you need to know whether you're in an I'm sorry state. Uh, and so you have to be careful as soon as that you've crossed over into clinical, I'm sorry. Yeah. But if, if uh, the department is dirty, I'm sorry. Yes, I am. I am sorry that it was dirty. 
anything that bothered you regarding the process, my gown was dirty. I'm sorry about the gown being dirty for sure. And here's what we're going to do about it so that other people don't uh, have that. And absolutely with regard to these regulatory uh, agencies, I think that the responses that I've seen are very Spock-like. They, yes. are, they are factual. Uh, they will usually be backed up by some kind of literature references to show that the care rendered was uh, at least satisfactory, at least uh, met the standard of care. But I also know that people can complain to uh, medical board for non-medical issues related to the physician was um, discourteous or the physician attempted to touch my breast in an unprofessional manner or something like that. And those are really dangerous, really dangerous. Very and so bad cases. You, you definitely want an attorney uh, involved in those. And we've said this right from the get-go. Anything from the medical board uh, that it is all uh, in getting interesting, you need uh, some help on these cases. Rick, we've got to go to uh, two different clinical problems now. And all I can say is eventually we're going to have to come to the point where if we don't have a specific diagnosis, we got to rethink the situation. The first one is a the long and short of this PE case is a college student goes to the UCC, uh, the university no, that was the urge, urgent care. Urgent care, urgent care. With a cough, chest pain, dyspnea. Well, all kinds of people get that. She gets an antibiotic and advised to return if symptoms worsen. Well, as it turned out, symptoms did get worse, and she returned two days later. When seen by a doctor on the second visit, um, uh, this is also the one who was available on the first uh, on the first visit. At that visit, she was tachycardia hypotensive. Now, Rick, can we say that she's changed some? Is that fair? Yeah, she, yes, she's I think not so. getting better. And she was given an inhaler this time and was discharged. The following morning, she was found dead. I hate it when that happens. That's never a good thing. Now we've got two visits. But there's no comment made on this record where he's rethinking the issue. And when you're tachycardic, tachycardic, hypotensive. Now, doctor, uh, yeah. can, I, can I interrupt you it's here? The, one of the things that, uh, one of the nuances here is one doctor saw her the first time with the yes. cough, chest pain and dyspnea and gave her the antibiotics. On the second visit, it was the doctor's first day on the job, job. and he picked her up and, and she was a new patient to this person. Now, what are the credentials of that person on the job? Uh, I don't know, but in any case, she, tachycardia is, you got to be careful with that tachycardia stuff. You, yeah. you really do. Right. Hypotensive tachycardia. Let me, let me think this through. So she got an inhaler. And uh, was discharged with this obviously uh, bad outcome. Now I should tell you, this is from Medical Malpractice, uh, Malpractice Insights. This is the the publication that you can get free. We'll give you the uh, uh, access number uh, to to get it. This has been going a long time. I'm blocking. Oh God, who's 
Who's the doctor who does this, Greg? Oh, God. Chuck, Chuck Pilcher. Chuck yeah, Pilcher, Pilcher yeah. right. Exactly. Well, well Chuck, we, we generally, you know, take a look at his cases and, and spin them our, our way. Uh, the take-home points in this case was failure to create a differential diagnosis. And that comes up over and over and over and over again, where we people have blinders on. They take the first diagnosis that is the most common, the most uh, the most benign, and they stick with it. And they ignore other uh, elements that suggest, that scream that this is not the right diagnosis. And you know, so, Rick, this, this can be difficult first time to make the diagnosis. We had a gal at uh, my hospital came in with a cough, sort of whiny, mother says, well, she doesn't want to go to school, blah, blah, blah. And uh, the sent home, uh, comes back the next day dead, a 13-year-old with, uh, how many times in your career have you seen somebody that young die from a PE? It's got to be rare. But I think the bit, the message here is first visit, okay, uh, second visit, uh, and getting worse. Now we got to rethink the case. Well, you and know, the big exactly. three here are, uh, are dissection, pulmonary embolism and myocardial infarction. Those are right. the big three. You got to, you know, you have to think of those for sure. Uh, so this person really didn't come up with a differential. I don't know what the credentials of the person doctor was on the second day, but, uh, you know, he just, Missed this uh, pretty clearly. Yeah. Uh, and the, the jury, jury was not kind, Rick. This this was a nine $9 million verdict. Catch this too. The plaintiff's counsel asserted that the urgent care center was too busy and it was understaffed and the clinician was rushed. This is profits ahead of patients. Can you just hear that in front of the jury? Yes, of course. Profits in front of patients. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I really like the idea of attacking you because, in fact, you are understaffed. You've chosen to be understaffed, and you're too busy, and this place is out of control and dangerous. And you can understand, I think, how a lay jury could put that together. And they also have to do is go back through the logbook and say, this poor doctor was being asked to see 13 different patients at the same time kind of thing. And... Ladies and gentlemen, the jury, what kind of job can he do? Look, look what happened to our poor person who slipped through the cracks here. Yeah, I rest the, my case. Yes, well, you, you've stated it well, Rick. And the, uh, the problem is, whether it's true or not, any of that stuff, it, it makes a, a good presentation to a jury, particularly when a family has lost a, a uh, young woman who's, you know, college student in her 20s kind of thing. Uh, it, it's very effective. Now, he gives us another case uh, where, where we've, oh. we've presented this case so many times, but people keep making this mistake. Tell us about the case. Well, Rick. listen, before I do that, uh, thinking of urgent care centers, did you see this headline? Uh -huh in the last couple of weeks where 15 doctors are going to be fired 
to be replaced by 15 nurse practitioners yes. in, in urgent care centers? Rick, you had to expect that that what is what going to happen because the last time I checked, one gets paid more than the other and somebody is going to try and uh, let's say uh, push the profit margin in their direction. It, it's going to happen. And it's, it just happened. It, it, it comes. Yeah, I never thought, honestly, six or seven years ago when we started doing courses for PAs and NPs in emergency medicine that, uh, you know, that this would come. I guess it was, it would, people would say, well, you, you were kind of stupid for not thinking this through because this was the eventual uh, how this Outcome. was going to go. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so the next case is a 48-year-old female arrived by EMS with uh, back pain after uh, lifting her grandchild. There is a leg and weakness numbness, leg and leg weakness and uh, numbness per the review of systems. She's had some prior uh, job-related instances of back pain, and she had a CT done five years ago. It showed some mild disc displacement. Well, who doesn't have that? Right. The nurses notes noted the patient to be angry, demanding, and unpleasant. Okay, well, we see that we've got some uh, tension developing here in this relationship. <laughs> the nurse notes that the patient moved the legs despite the patient's claim to be unable to do so. I'll prove it. I, I knew you were, you know, a pain in the butt, and now you're, 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 you're faking it. Yeah, by the way, it's interesting that all of us learned how to do correct examination of the extremities, lying down, sitting up, uh, how much pressure, all these sorts of things. It's rare that you actually seen it done on these cases. Then I said, well, the leg can move. That doesn't mean it moves correctly or it doesn't move without causing pain or all these other things. What you, what you read off this chart, and again, if I was plaintiff's counsel, I would push Look, they've already made a decision that she's a pain in the butt. She's angry. She's demanding. She's unpleasant. You know what? That's really not the way, if you can, uh, avoid that sort of language on the chart. Yeah, you can say that the patient may be upset, um, appears uh, uh, appears uh, something or other. Yes, Anyway, the patient voided 250 mLs of urine and uh, subsequently wound up getting a, a bladder scan to see if she had any residual urine, and it only was 900 mLs left. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, now, wait a second here. Uh, she gave me 250. And, you know, you, it's very hard to control urine. Uh, you know, it's it's not like she can let it out. Yeah. Well, you would know. Yes, I would. Yeah, you would know it's difficult to control your urine. In, in any case. It's bad. Yes. This resulted in a Foley catheter being placed. The neurosurgeon was consulted. Uh, the neurosurgeon sent the, their PA down to assess the patient. Urine retention was attributed to pain medication, although the only pain medication given was Toradol. I don't. I don't think that uh, ur urinary retention is a side effect of Toradol. I, I, and uh, be opioids that would be part of. Yeah. No imaging was ordered because uh, prior spontaneous voiding precluded uh, spinal cord injury. 
the nurse's note suggested patient exaggerating or drug seeking. So here's how this is spiraling down. You can just see this going badly. <laughs> this this <laughs> is going nowhere good, yeah. Rick. So yeah. they, they boarded her in the emergency department for 34 hours just to get her more pissed off. Uh, patient is ordered but refuses to get out of bed, maybe because she was freaking paralyzed. Right. By day five, catch this. She has failed avoiding trials. A Foley has been replaced in the ED. No bowel movement remains uncooperative. I can understand why. Spinal decompression surgery was arranged without a CT or MRI it, uh, being done first. What this is? This is like chronic pain, neurogenic bladder and bowel, saddle anesthesia, bilateral leg weakness, and foot drop, resulting in a quote-unquote sizable. Um, it says well, plaintiff verdict here. We would have known what that is, but in any case, they, there's no dollar sign here. There maybe it was a settlement instead where you don't necessarily know the amount, but this didn't go well. This got all kinds of red flags going on it. There's obviously poor relationship between the providers and the patient. Um, there's some fundamental kinds of things that are going wrong here as well. You know, when somebody sends down their first year medical student to come down and do a consult or, for you, you know, it's kind of like uh, this may be a teaching experience for the first year medical student, but it's uh, you, you've got serious business to attend here and you're looking for a real uh, opinion here. So I think that clearly I would have preferred the neurosurgeon be able to, th this is not something that, you know, they're busy people, but it sounds like this is worthy of a neurosurgeon's attention. It certainly does. I, I mean, I'm so sad when I see these cases because the level, because you send your PA uh, doesn't mean you sent your skill and your brain. And if you're not happy, if they say, well, she's got uh, uh, 600 cc's of urine still sitting in a bladder, you know, there's something wrong here. And uh, somebody needs to take care of it. Well, you All know, right. you talk, yeah, you talk about a residual of 900 ml. I, I don't think you have to go much further to justify getting a neurosurgeon down there. But in, nonetheless, this was everything that could go wrong did go wrong. Did here. go wrong. All right. In the news. Okay. Short bits. We ought to know about the University of Rochester Medical Center. That's in Rochester, New York. Uh, got its hand slapped to the tune of $3 million because of two data breaches. Now, uh, Rochester is a night and day kind of city. That was the home city of Eastman Kodak. And in the last 10 years, Eastman Kodak, which so, sold film, went from being a big-time company uh, to being nothing. Now, the other thing they did was they sold x-ray film. Uh, and you know how many x-ray films are actually used these days. It's a very sad situation. In any event, um, they, they had uh, two data breaches, one in 2013 uh, from an unencrypted flash drive and 2017, an unencrypted laptop. Between the first and second breaches, 
the, and of course, after the first one, they were warned, the hospital failed to conduct a, a, a risk analysis, implement security measures, and it's uh, and this is the kind of thing that the re- regulatory agencies need is to see that they've done nothing to reduce the risk and vulnerabilities uh, to protect uh, information that's going to be spread throughout the medical community. Um, some sort of mechanism should have been put into place to correct this problem the first time, Rick. Well, actually, the uh, Office of in, uh, the Attorney General, or who was ever involved in this case specifically, the OIG, OIG. basically helped the hospital in association with the first breach. So they basically said, okay, yeah, there's a breach. Here's what you need to do. And at the end of the first breach, they didn't, there wasn't any find as far as I was able to determine, but they didn't have a much of a sense of humor because when the same thing happened in 2017, and it turns out that they did nothing of the res of the, uh, remediation that the uh, they were supposed to do that they didn't have a leg to stand on so it was three million dollars all right here's a, i've got another short one i want to stick in here and and this is uh tharp versus saint luke's Med, uh surgery center uh and this comes to us from the supreme court of missouri uh this is a very interesting finding because uh they looked at the reversal of a lower court judgment against a hospital, finding that there was no uh, insufficient evidence or there was insufficient evidence to support the claim of negligent credentialing. The surgeon uh, had actually not told them about half of his malpractice cases. Now, it's interesting throughout the finding here, the Supreme Court used the term misstatement on the application. Is that anything like a lie, Rick? I'm, no, I'm it's not a, sure. It's a misstatement. It's a misstatement. Uh, but he he was appointed to the medical staff. He was functioning. And in the lawsuit that came about him, the Supreme Court said this misstatement, although it, it shows some sloppiness on the part of the hospital, the hospital, the plaintiff would have to show that that lack of knowledge or training or something he did in a previous lawsuit actually caused the problem in this case. I think this is the kindest ruling this physician and this hospital could have ever gotten, Rick. Well, okay. Let me, let me summarize here. So something bad went on as a result of a surgeon at a hospital, and these people are now uh, claiming uh, negligent credentialing. Right. And and during the credentialing process, they found that there were multiple omissions of lawsuits that related to the surgeon uh, from the, the past. Right. And this judge says that now that may be true and they maybe have done negligent credentialing, maybe, maybe not, but it's got nothing to do with the bad outcome that you had as a result of Dr. Such and such's surgery. Exactly. Uh, so I think that that's kind of interesting. The, this idea of attacking on the, on the uh, point being uh, negligent credentialing gets around 
the uh, caps on pain and suffering um, uh, that is out there in some of these cases so that the uh, if you can sue the hospital, uh, that's that's a different matter. And uh, credentialing is now becoming the focus of uh, lawsuits. Here, I've got another quick one here, which you ought to take uh, note of. And this is Crago, C-R-E-G-O versus Edward W. Sparrow Hospital, uh, which, of course, is here in Michigan, is in East Lansing. Uh, And what the court had to deal with was the question whether a physician who's an osteopathic doctor uh, can speak against an allopathic doctor, does it make any difference? And the the appellate court said, you know what? If you do OB-GYN, if you do general surgery, both licenses are recognized in Michigan. There's no real difference between the standards of care so they're perfectly willing to let an MD testify against a DO and a DO testify against an MD. What they did say in caution was, what's more important is what the physician expert actually does. If he or she hasn't done the procedure since their residency, if they're, if they're in a small rural hospital as opposed to a major trauma center, that sort of thing can be taken into account. But the license itself, MD or DO, cannot be used in Michigan to disqualify an expert for speaking against a physician. Well, that's good to know. Well, it it actually is. And I think in certain places, state of California, there are very few DOs, actually. It's it's pretty much an MD-dominated medical community. But when you get into Maine or Michigan, Missouri, some of these states, half the physicians are DOs. So this was considered a a real win in the DO community. There are 151,000 DOs in the country. And uh, when you look where DO medical schools are, they are in Missouri and in the heartland, much more so than on the periphery. Here's one by uh, Mark Nevin. Mark's a a PA who's a listener. Thanks for writing in, Mark. Uh, He pointed out that, you know, usually when there's a 72-hour hold, uh, there's the opportunity to uh, reinstate that hold if uh, the person still is suicidal or whatever the reason was to put the person on the hold. He says a Boston Municipal Court decision said that, no, no, at the end of 72 hours, you are free to go, sir. And which is, you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but this is a Boston city, uh, d- uh, decision. He said that, that, uh, that same decision has been applied to a nearby County and they're concerned that it may go, uh, statewide. I, I think that, uh, it would be very difficult to uphold that municipal decision when on a, on a broader scale. Well, I think one of the reasons this decision took place was this is a kick in the side for people to get things done in the 72 hours. So a doctor or hospital, if you don't get somebody in there, a a psychiatrist or, or somebody who can at least sign the commitment papers and move them to a psych facility, 
then you're putting the rest of the community at risk because we have to let these people go. I, I agree with you, Rick. This is a frightening kind of decision, and and I certainly wouldn't want to see it come down on me. But uh, all I can say is uh, uh, good luck. Uh, the psych situation of the country is not getting any better that I can tell. Uh, uh, there, there are psych questions uh, everywhere. There are homeless questions everywhere. These are where the, the real gaps in the system are, where people are going to fall fall between the the uh, the rungs of this ladder. Yeah, Greg, you have one coming up here. I like this next one. Oh, the uh, <laughs> CBS uh, reported the case of a lawsuit being filed on December 5th by a nurse who worked at Penn uh, Medicine. Uh, that's in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, I'm sure. But the uh, University of Pennsylvania, they've had a relationship with uh, that hospital out there, and I guess maybe they just bought it. And, and so they, they're part of that system. Uh, she was allegedly fired, fired for refusing to get a flu shot based on religious reasons and because she read that flu shots can increase miscarriages. Uh, I hadn't heard that one, but flu shots have been required by the Penn system, Penn system since uh, 2012, and um, uh, other requests for exemptions have been uh, denied. Uh, first of all, we're the only country where this is a big issue. The British did a lot of studies, and they said, you know, the flu shots <laughs> actually help to keep our patients better. Uh, it, you must get your flu shot if you intend to work. Now, is, is that a form of coercion, uh, Rick? Are we forcing somebody to do something that's against their will? Uh, they're being paid. There is data to suggest, most of it British, that it does make the patients better because they stop bringing in all this bad disease. What should we do here? I think it's a bit of a dilemma, it, 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 and it's kind of interesting in that in California right now, there is a big ado about measles vaccine, and uh, there are these anti-vaxxers who basically have gone to our governor, Governor Newsom, and have uh, taken residence in his uh, foyer outside of his office, basically because there was a uh, law basically mandating that you get your immunizations. And uh, actually, he watered down that law when he signed it. And so there was some uh, concern on the part of the people who are in favor of vaccinations. But this is not going to go away. There are these people who believe that vaccinations should not be given uh, have, uh, they're ardent in their beliefs. And so this is, this is like people aren't going to be changing their minds. So that I, and the other thing here is that in California, I think if it's, you give more than five exemptions for a flu, for, uh, immunizations to a child, uh, that you'll be reviewed by the medical board more than five. So Whoa. they're looking they're looking for, you know, there was a doctor in Orange County here 
whose license was uh, restricted to some degree as a result of the fact that he was a anti-vaxxer and he was he would be giving you these um, excuses uh, right and left. So the state really, really clamped down. They clamped down on him. They clamped down on uh, the regulations. And yet there is this, still this uh, act of protest. I thought that the hospitals, if you weren't going to wear, I mean, get a flu shot, that they, you would be required to wear a mask uh, all the time around the hospital. And, uh, Oh, this was termination, Rick. Yeah. This (laughs) this isn't putting a mask on. Well, you know, that may be the, what this has come to. Um, I think they can make a good argument for termination, but I think there are probably pretty strict unions out there that are going to try to defend their employees. I don't actually know what is done by our local hospitals, but I do know that our hospital and that was a while ago, said, well, if you don't want to get the flu shot, you have to wear a mask all the time. This was like the scarlet A of the hospital, people walking around wearing masks. It was kind of like those were the uh, anti-flu shot people. All right. The next, the next case I've got is one which has to do with a patient transfers. Uh, and this is the New Jersey Appellate Court. And uh, the case is Patel, P-A-T-E-L, versus Meridian Health System Incorporated. Here's what was going on. A doctor who had privileges at the hospital, but no geographic location. He didn't have an office in the region. He had nothing set up, so another physician took his patients. So when the emergency department called... Uh, what did he tell them to do with his patients? Call the on-call doctor. Well, no, no, he he did worse than that. He had them sent to another hospital where he did have privileges, which was out of the geographic region. And the hospital board said, "We're dropping your privileges because the act of of uh, of uh, transfer can in its in and of itself." constitute an imminent risk or danger. Uh, there's no reason if, if we have the capability to take care of a patient, you're tying up medical services and putting a patient at risk by sending them somewhere else. All of us have had this problem at some point in the past where somebody at a bigger, fancier hospital, which basically means the residents do their work, uh, had them transferred um, uh, sort of immediately. There was no thought of keeping the patient. Thought it's interesting that the the uh, appellate court of New Jersey said, "Yeah, you're putting them at risk by ma- not maintaining privileges. Uh, the hospital did the right thing in pulling your uh, hospital privileges." Okay, how about this one? I, this one this one annoys me. This is from the Battle Creek Inquirer. That's up in your neck of the woods, isn't it? It is. Well, wait a second. Battle Creek, that's Kellogg's. Uh, we call that Snap, Crackle, Popville. <laughs> and, and of course, uh, that's where uh, Kellogg first came up with his cornflakes. So is that any, anywhere near you? Uh, about, uh, from where I'm sitting right now, about uh, 80 miles, Rick. Right, okay. 
Well, this is from the Battle Creek Inquirer, published December 9th, 2019. It involved uh, a Burmese woman who spoke very little English. She was scheduled for an MRI as an outpatient. And uh, on arriving uh, for the MRI, uh, there were some issues with regarding uh, inavailability of an interpreter. Uh, now, the hospital did have the telephone interpreter kind of system that we know about. And for some reason, they didn't use that in the MRI department uh, or there was something wrong. What they would not do is they would not let the husband interpret for the patient. Yeah, that's crazy. This is because, catch this, because patients and family are not allowed uh, pardon me, family and friends are not allowed to provide interpretation due to legal protocols, legal protocols. Now, we did a whole bunch of stuff on interpreters a long time ago, and basically you need to be a qualified interpreter. So the housekeeper is not a qualified interpreter necessarily. However, you, you need some judgment here for crying out loud to say categorically that your husband cannot uh, – interpret because he's not necessarily a qualified interpreter is is insulting demeaning and ridiculous yes exactly what if they wanted her in the radiology department to roll over or to yeah. stay still i mean that's what family members do is help you out if they had to explain something complex medically to the patient i understand that but this this was just garbage <laughs> and, and, uh, oh my, oh my God. Think of all the times in our early medical practice when we used family members, Rick, and it was, it was not uncommon. Right. So basically the, uh, Medicare people say, if you want to be a Medicare hospital, you have to provide uh, qualified interpreters. Qualified is kind of like, uh, you can get determined what qualified is uh, at your hospital. There's not a lot of uh, specific rules and regulations. You do not have to have certified interpreters. Certified interpreters do exist. They take a test, but uh, that would be uh, pretty burdensome to most places. But the fact of the matter is, is that this ruling, I think, this is the, the legal system going nuts uh, here. And it's not really the system. I bet you it's the attorneys for that hospital up there that have been eating too many sugar uh, sugar snaps or sugar pops, you yeah. know, for crying out loud. <laughs> yeah, they may have. And it, it, the other thing is, in this case, uh, they, they took a photograph of the order sent to the uh, MRI department. It was... It was extraordinarily clear. It was, there was, it was the, the writing was perfect on it kind of thing. There was no misunderstanding what needed to be done. And obviously the hospital wound up saying, I'm sorry. Let but, me tell you the problem of the services uh, for translation. Uh, because you, you're from India, India has at least 400 languages or subset of language and 4,000 uh, smaller divisions of that. I had someone on the phone and, and I got an interpreter uh, and, and they, they spoke for a couple of minutes and he said to me, I don't actually speak this dialect. 
Now, we're going to have to go through it kind of word by word here because it's not the same thing. I, I think because you, you, in that case, could follow the letter of the law and get an interpreter. That's who this service had. But it doesn't accomplish what you want. So what I did was spoke to the woman's uh, 14-year-old daughter, who, who, of course, speaks English perfectly, and the regional language in India where she was from, that worked out just fine. Now, whether I broke the uh, confidentiality of the patient there, I'm not sure, but there wouldn't have been anything accomplished if you, we hadn't done that. You probably committed about two or three felonies right then and there. First of all, you broke HIPAA because you're talking to her daughter about her problem kind of thing. Right. Then it's, then it's not clear that this was a qualified interpreter who understands and is able to convey the concepts that you're talking about, doctor, like turn over. <laughs> right. you know, can you understand <laughs> did turn she, over? Okay. Yeah, did she vomit? <laughs> exactly. And, and uh, it's one of those things where you see and think, oh my, God, do we have to put up with this? Um, uh, breaking news, the Fifth Circuit Court uh, has said the ACA, the Obamacare mandate, is on the individual mandate is unconstitutional. This case has now been sent back <laughs> for further evaluation in the Circuit Court. Uh, New York Times reported that uh, Basically, the fifth court said, uh, you can't make somebody take insurance. Yes, you, you can, doctor. Well, you, you can. I drive a car. I'm required to have insurance in the state of California. Well, they didn't say that for medicine. And what they said was, if you think it's the public good to have health care, just give it to everybody. But the individual mandate, the way, is discriminatory against people uh, who don't make adequate money. So, uh, uh, do you, does the state of California care about how much money you make to get your car insured? They don't care about, uh, care <laughs> about that. Come on, doctor. Yeah. Uh, I, I can tell you actually the state of California being, uh, the liberal left that we are, uh, passed a law requiring, uh, insurance in the state of California and the fine is not $95. The Obama Era fine was $95 if you didn't get the insurance. It was clear that this was like, well, well certainly I'm not going to get the insurance. I'll pay the $95 fine. And then the, the second year, I think it was like going to be $180. In California, uh, I don't know exactly what it, but I heard that it's going to be quite substantial. Maybe three, four, five hundred $500 if you don't get insurance. Since they're really pushing, really pushing uh, heavy here, um, covered California. Covered California is Obamacare, where, where the, uh, the government will subsidize you getting commercial sh insurance if you uh, need help and uh, get you on Medicaid and this, that, and the other thing. So we're basically saying, screw it, we're going to do it our own way. Now, obviously, that that's going to be challenged. Right, Ex exactly. And uh, it, all it does is tie us up for more time uh, fighting these little battles Although, which uh, go on forever. Living in the uh, state of California, I do think 
the whole premise of insurance is that you have to insure the entire lot uh, so that uh, spread the risk. Yes, that's the nature. That's the that's the fundamental nature of insurance. So right. if you have all of these young people who are healthy saying, "Well, I'm not going to do it," kind of thing, well, that's not good because it's it's against the fundamental nature of insurance. And yet, don't get hit by a car out here with no insurance because uh, you could take in a county hospital, and or God forbid, you're taken to Cedar Sinai where you'll get a bill for a couple hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> exactly. And, and so, uh, I, I I think it's ridiculous that this country has so many people uninsured. We're the only Westernized country that basically has, you know, 20, 20 million people who have no health insurance and a substantial other port who are substantially underinsured are those people who have, my daughter-in-law has a $6,000 deductible before she starts getting a nickel. Yeah, but she makes uh, 6000 bucks a day, doesn't she, Rick, or something like that? I hope so. so. Yeah, I, I hope, hope so, too. Uh, one other thing uh, to point out, which is a very difficult concept, why when we write things down, we need to think about it. Uh, and uh, the docs all have to come together uh, on this one. CNBC uh, in December... Uh, December 18th uh, in uh, 19 uh, reported that there is now a system going on where hospitals are weighing the idea of selling new physician, uh, new patient data as a lucrative, as a money-making business, selling patient health information to tech companies. Now, tech companies do supply lists to people who sell medical products, who do this, do that. Uh, this is the first time organized hospitals are putting together a group to sell this kind of data. Shouldn't this be illegal, Rick? Uh, yeah, I don't. Uh, you got to give us some more details there. This just sounds way too loosey goosey there. Yeah. Uh, the, the article says that many hospitals are increasingly in dire financial straits, and uh, we're going to make the argument that the prospect of selling such data uh, would be a way to cover some of their losses. Well, you know, I can see selling data that where they have taken the patient's names and all the identifiers off. I mean, you can't... HIPAA Nobody wants Rick. That's not what they want to sell. They want to sell the name and the HIPAA identifier. protects you uh, here, doctor. Uh, you've heard of HIPAA, I believe. Well, I I would I would hope that it would, but but if you hear your hospital is involved in this, and they say substantial number are putting together this group to sell this information as a pack to uh, tech companies. I mean, do you really want uh, Mark Zuckerberg <laughs> in charge of your of your health information? Well, he knows everything else about you. What the heck? <laughs> yes. Hey, listen, I got one other thing before we wrap up here. Um, <laughs> I should have gotten the details because Envision, there was a newspaper article, Envision and Team Health have formed a joint venture with some, you know, name like patient benefit 
organization, we love patients or something to that, you know, yeah. uh, nature with the, uh, purpose of blocking the, uh, resolution to surprise medical bills, you know, uh, the uh, surprise medical bill thing is going back and forth. Uh, there's support for it on both sides of the aisle, but the nuances are what this is about. Are the insurance companies going to win? Are the uh, medical providers going to win? Who's going to, where, where's going to the cake going to get sliced up here? Obviously surprise medical bills need to be resolved. That whole issue needs to be resolved. Patients can't get stuck here, uh, getting blindsided when the, the ER group is, uh, not in network with them, which is, uh, you know, pretty absurd. Right. Uh, but, the, you know, the ER group says, well, the insurance companies don't want to pay us enough. And the insurance companies say the doctors want too much. And so they're basically at an impact. But in the meantime, patients are getting these bills. And uh, it would seem that the CEO of the hospital would have to say, you guys got to sit down and you got to you got to iron this out. There's no uh, walking away from this. Yeah, in any no. case. Yeah, uh, that's, that, in, in any event, it's... Uh, this is not going to go away, and it's not going to be solved simply. It's like the drug prices. Uh, what, but very few people don't don't want to talk about is if you're in England or Sweden or something, you take uh, almost a third less medication. Why? Because most of the shit we give doesn't work anyway, and and uh, uh, the big fight is over. I want my maximum benefit and everything my doctor wants. And what I want to say to him sometimes is you need a new doctor who's not going to have you on 14 supplements that that'll start the discussion of how we reduce healthcare costs in the country. Well, doctor, we are at the end of our time. I'm looking at Greg over the Skype line and I'm looking out the window. You have an office with a window now, doctor. And I'm looking out there and all I'm seeing is white. I yes. see, I see a white truck. I see white ground. I see white. Everything's out there is white. Yes, it is. As a matter of fact. Uh, and, uh, that's kind of the way it is in Michigan this time of the year. Uh, let me, uh, let me talk about wine of the month for just a second. Uh, Mark, uh, Tulin, uh, visited his local North Scottsdale Costco, uh, and he found a bottle of Brunello di Montesino at $27. Uh, he, he, he admits that he was probably under the influence when writing this, but says it's an absolute excellent bottle of wine. Mark, let me fill you in on a few things. Number one, this is a part of the series that Casco is now calling one of its signature wines. I went, I took my wife yesterday. We went to Costco. Uh, she's got the Costco card. So I took her over. She said, all right, do what you need to do. I, I tried to buy this wine and taste it. They're out of it. It's so popular and so good. But, you know, while I was there, I thought I'd look at all the new wines that they're now taking because we reported last year Costco had gone into agreements with major wineries in California, France, uh, Italy, and Greece, and they're putting out 
their own, uh, uh, I don't think they call it Kirkland necessarily, but they're putting out these, these wines, which everybody says are exceptional. I mean, there are big time names in wine, uh, Louis Jadot from France, things like that, who've signed on board um, because they either get on board or they're going nowhere uh, because they move so much wine through the shelves at Costco. So here's a promise. Uh, when, when they get it in, when it comes back, I will taste it and I will report it on this show. So hey, thanks. You know, Mark right. sent me a picture of the bottle. It does say yes. Kirkland on it. Yes. Oh, <laughs> and the other thing is here, he also said, while under the influence of this fine wine, Mark acknowledged that, quote, the Risk Management Monthly podcast is the best CME around. Obviously, he was. He was he, under the influence. Yeah, yeah, obviously. Yeah. All right, guys, that's it for uh, January 2020. We'll talk with you next month. Bye for now. Bye-bye, Greg. Bye, Rick.